The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow if you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us, and you can follow live tweeting of the show at hashtag BigBeaconRadio. And today, we're fortunate to um, have author, CEO, and... Um, a joyful bon vivant with us today, Richard Sheraton. Welcome to the show, Rich. Great to be here, Dave. Thanks for having me. Well, and and um, uh, anyways, I was just saying before the show that I read your book some some time ago, and it's, uh, I really enjoyed it, and I'm really happy to uh, have you on the show. And we'll dig into the book in a moment, but um, you've been a programmer, a company executive, of an entrepreneur, um, and and the the author of this engaging book, You Inc. Let's uh, hop back in the time machine, and uh, what were some of the very earliest influences in your life that sort of led to the path that you're on? You know, when I dig back in my own personal history and think about joy uh, in my life, um, the first easy place I go to was as a freshman in high school in 1971 when I touched a computer for the first time. And I know that's surprising probably to some of your listeners that there were, in fact, computers back in 1971. They worked a little bit different in those days. But I typed a two-line program into a computer, and it clacked out on a roll of paper over a dial-up phone line because that's the way they used to work. And it clacked out high rich because that's what I told it to do. Yep. And I was hooked. I knew what I was going to do the rest of my days. And that yeah, and was the first moment I experienced sort of that calling uh, that um, maybe some of us rarely get, but I, I had it at a very early age. Well, and, that, and that's uh, you know fortunate for you. And I and actually I'm I, I'd almost uh, as much like to explore growing up as Detroit guys. I I, I grew up in Detroit and uh, was uh, graduated from uh, Oak Park High School in um, in seventy one. Um, awesome. And uh, but you're a Detroit guy, right? Yeah, I, I grew up in Macomb County, just north of Detroit, Chippewa Valley High School grad. 
Yeah, and so I'm tempted to talk about uh, playing bocce ball at Buddy's Pizza and going down to <laughs> Coney Island and catching the last three at Hazel Park, but we won't we won't do that today. Well, but I think we'll. Uh, but maybe maybe some of that that joy in, in, uh, informs uh, some of what we're we're talking about here. And and on this program, we're interested in uh, what we call unleashing experiences. Mark Somerville and I wrote a book called A Whole New Engineer, where we talk about unleashing young people to essentially to the joy in their their lives and um and and in some sense your the clackety clack of your teletype in 71 was one of those but um you know you you've had a broad experience as a um as a as a techie as a as a as a company executive as an entrepreneur as the starter of new companies uh, you know what what were some of the and and some of those were pretty non-traditional. So, what was it that gave you the courage to go off the beaten path like that and unleash yourself? Or what influences in your life or people in your life enabled you to to have that courage? Well, I was very fortunate to grow up in a household where there was a tremendous amount of love uh, in the family, and so uh, my mom and dad were absolutely. Um, always cheerleaders. And I think that was a huge influence on my life. I I think very quickly when you start doing stuff like writing software, when you're just a kid, especially back in the seventies, your parents kind of look at you and say, how do you do this? This is amazing. How did you learn to do this? Because clearly you didn't learn that from your parents, but just simply that encouragement that I got uh, from my parents to just keep going. Um, my dad was an avid reader, so there were books around the house all the time. And um, I had two older brothers who, uh, because they were six and eight years older than me, uh, there wasn't the natural sibling competition. I kind of always looked at them like hero figures in my life because they were older. And so I watched them, and I wanted to be more like them. And they'd been doing interesting things uh uh, both sort of academically in, in school as well as just uh, just interesting hobby pursuits. My brother built a telescope when he was uh, a mm. kid. And when, when you're sort of eight and nine years old and you're watching your 16-year-old brother do stuff like that, uh, mm. you just can't help but be drawn in. At least I couldn't. And so I think early on my heart started singing about engineering pursuits. And uh, that just, um, you know, when I realized that, as a freshman in high school that maybe I really could be an engineer that I wanted to build things. That was where my heart was for a long time. And that the thing I would be able to build is software. And that just sort of cascaded me down a path that, uh, that quite frankly, at 58 years old, uh, you know, and 45 years later, I'm still on that path to this day. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, there's this nice, uh, video, uh, about uh, I think it's from coding.org about about coding and uh, where Bill Gates and and Mark Zuckerberg and others talk about the ways in which coding unleashed them and it seems like there's something there's something special about uh, coding that's sort of auto unleashing uh, you know the that it, it it's a self-contained environment that is kind of special and gives you gives you feedback when things work and and I guess also kind of harsh feedback when things don't work in the sense that uh, allows you to kind of do the this uh, kind of um, uh, build confidence in your own ability to to accomplish things and and accomplish fairly, fairly complex projects. Would you agree? Yes. Well, and the beautiful thing about computers is they are completely objective and non-judgmental. 
They will do exactly what you tell them to do, right or wrong. And so because you're not being judged, you're not getting a grade, you're not, uh, they're not, there's not a lot of red ink pouring out on, the, on a paper based on some uh, subjective criteria based on the mood of the person grading you, but the computer just objectively tells you how you're doing because when you type the word run or you execute your program, it either goes forward the way you expected or it falls flat. But yeah. when it falls flat, it's on you. And so you just continually push, and because it's there all the time, it's very patient with you in some sense. It's just there waiting for the next chance you get. You just try it again and again. And, and uh, when you're a kid and you've got kind of infinite time, you just keep working at it. And I'm sure there are kids who give up and they get frustrated. I never did. Yeah, that's interesting. And, so, and, and uh, I, you know, I did some coding uh, um fairly early on, but it was ham radio was sort of in the same ways. Uh, you, you, uh, you, you soldered up the circuit and the darn thing worked or not. And I really like your, your description of it being non, non-judgmental. It's just the, the thing, the thing works or not. And, and, and if you've debugged it, 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 good things happen. If you haven't, uh, um, you're not hearing the, the contact from uh, New Zealand that you would hope to, uh, hope to get. So uh, there is this kind of the sense that, uh, I hadn't thought of technology in, in in that kind of way, but I there's a there is a beauty to it. So in 2013, well, you, oh, go ahead, no, go ahead, in, go for it. I think it's informing the maker movement today, where kids can be putting together little Arduino devices yes. and uh, Raspberry Pi programming and that sort of thing. And in the same way as when my brother was building Heathkit radios when he was uh, very young. Uh, kids have that same opportunity today to just keep trying stuff. And quite frankly, it's a pretty heady experience when you get something to work. Well, and it's a, and it's a huge shift from, you know, making in the, in many ways, the tradition of making is, is a low class endeavor and it's become hip and cool in the makers movement, which um, is also, is also a good thing. There's a sense in which uh, becoming an engineer, becoming something that wasn't, heady and intellectual was was problematic that's uh in in ways where that that kind of stigma is being erased absolutely yeah and so uh in 2013 you you wrote uh you inc uh, how we build a how we built a workplace people love um you know, what's the story behind behind yeah that so book? um the the advent of joy inc was one where um uh I had been talking about Menlo in the context of joy for a few years. I was actually really convicted by Simon Sinek's message, Start With Why, and I realized that there was a why hiding inside of our mission statement uh, from the very beginning, but I never actually talked about it first. I never started with why, and when people came to Menlo on tours, and we had about 4,000 people come through our doors last year alone just to see how we do what we do. I would often talk about the what and the how, but I would seldom talk about the why. But then I decided I'm going to start with why, the way Simon Sinek tells us to in his book. And I realized that this joy message was sitting inside of our, um, our mission statement because we said that since 2001, our goal is to return joy to one of the most unique endeavors mankind has ever undertaken. And so when people came in our door for that tour right after I'd listened to the cynic video, I said, welcome to Menlo. You've come to a place that's very intentionally focused their culture 
on the business value of joy. And ultimately, that statement and all the talks that followed led to, in some ways, the world demanding that I write a book called Joy, Inc., How We Built the Workplace People Love. Yeah, and, and, uh, and in, the, in the foreword, uh, Carrie Patterson talks about um, that you were, at, at one point, you were thinking about the book being about culture and change, and, um, and it, was, it was hard, actually, to kind of make that transition to, to, to joy. Is that, is that a fair assessment of the history? It wasn't so much hard as I was, um, and Kerry called me on the carpet for this, and I tell the story in the forward, or he tells the story in the forward. I mean, and um, <clears throat> what had happened was, as I started writing the book, I thought maybe I'm being too bold, maybe I'm being too uh, forward in saying that everyone should pursue joy within the context of their own work. Maybe what I really should talk about is just simply you want to change your culture. And Carrie just pulled me up short, looked me in the eye, and said, don't you dare. Because <laughs> yeah. you, you can deliver a message about joy in the workplace like nobody else can. And if you back off from that, you will have you've done the world a disservice. And so in some ways, I didn't have to change the direction or even the content of the book much. But he was the one who emboldened me and, emboldened me and said, Rich, tell him it's about joy. Don't let them off the hook. And, you know, and that was a really important moment in the writing of the book. And, and, and then we had a similar experience in, in, uh, in writing A Whole New Engineer. And, and when we talk about the pillars of new education, joy is, is, is among them. And, and kind of talking about uh, joy as part of an engineering or computer science education was, was sort of similarly... Yeah, I guess we it was in many ways the same motivation. Mark Mark Somerville and I sort of backed off of what we were actually witnessing in the kinds of changes that were taking place at Olin College and at at the University of Illinois and the iFoundry experiment. But it it was but it was actually it was sort of um, there was a sense in which I guess there was a sense for us as academics that we were worried that our our colleagues wouldn't take us seriously, that they would think that it was friv- it was that talking about joy as part of education was frivolous and 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 not worthy of a serious uh, book about how education should be. You know, and I thought the same thing too, and I worried a little bit about that. Uh, but when I started to see how the world yeah. received the message, how. Yeah. In some ways, how hungry they were for the message. Yeah, I knew I was on the right track. Yeah, no, nice, and and so the and so the book centers on your experiences in building Menlo, Menlo Innovations in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Sometimes people hear that name, and well, it it, it uh, calls forward uh, Thomas Edison. It also people think of uh, Menlo. Um, uh, Park in uh, Silicon Valley sort of it has kind of a Silicon Valley kind of name, but uh, but people don't necessarily associate it with Ann Arbor, Michigan. But but what you know what is what is or what was Menlo Innovations going back to two thousand one, and and what is it today? Yeah, so the name itself actually is inspired by the Menlo Park, New Jersey lab of Thomas Edison, which I got to visit every summer as a kid in Southeast Michigan by going to visit Greenfield Village, the historic park that Henry Ford had built. Sure. Uh, legally called the Edison Institute. So Henry Ford built this park uh, really as an 
in homage to his friend Thomas Edison. And the first building he moved there was the Menlo Park, New Jersey Lab of Edison and recreated yep. it there. And I got to visit that park when I was a kid, get to see that building, walk in the room, and quite frankly, get goosebumps from the experience of being in the same room that Edison had worked in. And so that was kind of what invoked my um, uh, my spirit of um, naming the company in honor of Edison, because many of the practices that we use here are very similar to what Edison did back in those days, working in a big, open, and collaborative work environment, and so on. Um, Menlo, when it started in 2001, was started with one sort of myopic mission, and it's one we're still on to this day, although what we do exactly inside of this mission has changed a bit. We wanted to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. And while that can sound tongue-in-cheek, it was actually my own negative experience in the industry over time where I was thinking of getting out entirely because the work that I was doing, I felt, was substandard. It was less than what I thought was possible, and it was, I felt like it was fighting upstream to try and get great work out to the world. And when I uh, took, sort of, you know, took inventory of what I had dreamed about when I was a kid and where I was as a working adult moving up a corporate ladder, moving from programmer to vice president, I realized that somewhere along the way the dream had been lost. And I was determined to get back to it. And uh, in many ways, Menlo is an emotional response to an industry gone very, very badly. Uh, you know, our industry probably owns some of the largest business project failures in the history of mankind. And I didn't want to be part of that anymore. And if I couldn't figure out a way out, I was going to get out entirely. In many ways, Menlo is that response. Nice. And, and, um, and so um, today, just give us a sense of, uh, you know, so the company uh, still based in Ann Arbor, how, how many folks work for it, uh, what kinds of uh, projects do you take on, that sort of thing? What is it today? Yep. Yeah, so what we are um, is, you know, the, the, what we do is we are a software design and development firm. That means that's the, that's the area where we get most of our revenue still to this day. Yep. Um, we design and develop software for other companies, and they can be as, you know, pick your favorite big brand uh, around the country. We've probably done some amount of work for them, but we also work a lot with startup companies. We become their software R&D team, and when we do that, we often take equity and royalty positions in the, in the companies that we work for and the products we help them build. And so we still earn the majority of our income from doing, which, uh, you know, is quite frankly, near and dear to my heart. I, again, I'm still in, my inner engineer wants to build things. We want the work of our hearts, our hands, and our minds to delight others in the world. That's kind of our fundamental definition of joy here is yep. we want people who one day use the software we create to thank us and tell us how much they love it. And the people in the software industry are typically denied that joy because the project's Either A, don't ever see the light of day, or when they do deliver, everybody hates it. Uh, and we didn't want that. So we had to craft an entirely new way of doing things. The practices that we use are so interesting that we teach them to the world. Yeah. So a good yeah. portion of our revenue actually comes also from teaching. We're, we're open source in that sense. We're not trying to keep anything we've learned a secret. And uh, we 
offer up what we call the Menlo experience. And we had 4,000 people come through our doors uh, last year alone just to come see what we do. They stay anywhere from two hours to five days taking a deep peek inside of what we do and how we do it. And now we're being asked by some of our customers to help transform their organizations. So there's a component of Memo that is about consulting with them to bring some of the joy home, not to make themselves look just like Menlo, but sure. to understand the basic principles that are at work here. Well, I want to explore some of these um, uh, practices. We're going to take a little bit of a break, but after the break, I think we want to dig into um, some of the 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 secrets, well, the not-so-secret, not the open-source sauce that uh, that you're sharing with the world. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, Rich Sheridan. And in the next segment, we want to explore what uh, what Menlo Innovations is all about and, and how Joy Inc. comes to life in that organization. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call one 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. We urge you to get a copy of the book that is helping to transform higher education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at wholenewengineer.org. Dan Pink says, this isn't a book about engineering. It's a book about education, entrepreneurship, and ultimately the future. Read it and prepare to take notes. So uh, we're back with uh, Richard Sheridan of Menlo Innovations and author of Joy, Inc. And and before the break, we were talking about um, the writing of the book, why it needed to be written. And, and Rich, um, I don't know if you've had this experience, but whenever I sit down to write a book, I'm kind of overconfident that I know everything that I need to know to write write the book. And then I get into it, and I actually I learn a whole bunch of stuff in 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 writing the book. And so I'm curious uh, if you had that experience. What what were the biggest surprises or biggest uh, things that you learned in the actual writing of the book? Well, I'm sure you learned as I did that it's a whole lot harder than one imagines when when you first flip open the laptop and start typing. Uh, but book 
writing a book was absolutely on my bucket list. Uh, a lot of people have asked, you know, did I have a ghostwriter? And I'm like, oh, no, I wanted to do this myself. This is, uh, I love to write. And um, this was, you know, felt a little bit like the equivalent of, you know, scaling one of the top peaks in, uh, in the business world to, to actually go through the process of writing a book. And it was a delightful journey. Um, one of the things I realized was that um, one way to get, from beginning to end is to just simply be writing. And I, uh, I, I wasn't sure if I needed to have a perfect outline and write it from beginning to end and that sort of thing. And in the middle of it, I, the only way I garnered enough time to actually write was to stop reading books for the time I was writing because that freed up some of my time. Yep. And, uh, but the one book I read while writing the book was Stephen King's book on writing. And that was really helpful to me because what King said was, he says, I have no idea where I'm going when I'm writing the, the, uh, the novels that he writes. And that was very freeing for me because I thought I needed to have everything mapped out perfectly from beginning to end, and then I would just fill in the pieces along the way. But when he said that, I just it's, it freed me up to just start writing stories. And I didn't worry about connectedness in the early days. I didn't worry about uh, the overall thread of everything. I just started writing stories. And in some ways, those writings began to formulate the overarching message from beginning to end and the organization of it. And uh, it's safe to say that I actually wrote the entire book in four weeks, which is a bit of an exaggeration. But what I mean by that is, uh, I, I had a March 1st deadline with my um, publishing house, Penguin, and um, uh, in, in late January, they told me I needed a lot of work on the book, <laughs> okay. and I thought, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? And, and for some reason, that just spurred me on, and from very late in January to the very end of February, March 1st, I turned in the book on time. I essentially wrote the book from beginning to end. And the only way I was able to do that was because of all the writing I had done in the 11 months prior. And, of course, I grabbed some of those pieces and parts, but in some ways it was like training for a marathon where uh, simply by writing I was practicing for this moment where I was going to run the race from beginning to end and get it done, and I did it. And um, so that was one massive learning there. And then the second one was how incredibly important the editing process is. Because mm. when I got done on March 1st, I had a manuscript. But when I pressed send later that summer to my publisher, the, the, the day the book was done, at least the last time my hands would touch it, I had a book. And the only difference between those two is the quality of the editors that worked alongside me to make that happen. Nice. And so, I, and so I'm hearing a lot of uh, process learning. And, and of course, there, there were the, <clears throat> the lessons of, of Menlo Innovations and, and the, the joy that you'd brought to the, to the, helped bring to the organization. And I'm wondering if, if there was um, sort of content uh, learning along the way as well. That, or when you kind of pasted it together, were there, were there things that you learned about the message or how to convey the message that were that that had eluded you prior to that you know for a while um my title playful title inside of menlo was chief storyteller mm -hmm. around about the time the book came out that made it right onto my business card because one of the things i discovered along the way of writing the book was the importance of storytelling yes. to building great culture. 
and it dawned on me while writing the book how important the stories I was relaying in the book were, not only to the world who wanted to read about us, but to me and to our team. That stories are the way humanity has propelled civilization forward throughout human history. If you think about campfires and totem poles and talking sticks and and songs of yore and, and anthems, all those things are about capturing and retelling stories to make sure that not only for today, but well into the future, you're yep. capturing the stories that tell the world and your own team, what is it that we think is the most important thing? What do we value the most? And I think that's the thing I discovered along the way of writing the book, that this wasn't just a book for the world. This is a book both for me and for our team to remind ourselves of the things we most value. You know, and that's that's really interesting. And when when Mark and I walk into uh, a school that says that they want to transform, they they say, "Well, ask us. Well, what's the most important thing?" And there are a number of things that we'll talk about. But one of them is we say, "Well, okay. So what uh, you say you want to transform? What's the story that you want to tell?" And and for and I would say most most deans and department heads and the people that we're talking to don't believe us that that's the most mm-hmm. important thing. But I couldn't agree more with, um, with what, what you're saying. So, um, so in an early chapter, you talk about your journey to joy and, and, um, and you've talked a little bit about how you got to joy being the, the, the main thing, but you know, what, um, what was it that convinced, well, what was it along the way that convinced you that, and maybe you've said enough already, but I'll let you be the judge of that, 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 that joy was the main ingredient and, and that it was imperative to tell the, the story of joy. How did you get there? Yeah, what, you know, I think that's the other thing I learned along the way of writing the book and continually retelling the story verbally while the book was being written is how to articulate joy to the world in a way that they can understand and take away from and make meaningful to themselves because in no way do I ever want to tell anybody in the world that they should try and copy what we've created here. They're welcome to try, but I don't think that's the way you get to joy in your life because this is a very personal journey for me as it is for all of your listeners. And so what I talk about, and I think this is important, if you think about higher education or a technology company or a hospital or a school or anything in life, I think the message, the strong message that I want to give to your listeners is this. The first place you have to look is externally. Who do you serve? And what delight do you want to create in the world of the people you serve? And that's what we thought about. When I, so what I thought about I was being denied in the course of my career early on was that some of the projects I worked on never saw the light of day. And those that did frustrated the people they were intended to serve. And at that point, my inner engineer was being destroyed. Yeah. And I I just didn't want to be in the industry anymore if what I was doing was either doing substandard work, never having it get out to see the light of day, or when it did, it frustrated people. And so all of this focused our attention on one simple idea, and that is we want to delight the people we serve with the work of our hearts, our hands, and our minds. And quite frankly, I think that is the, the intrinsic definition of an engineer. If you really get to the heart of the engineer, 
is that they want to delight others. They want people to say, really, you did that? I love that thing. You made my life better because of what we did. And I wanted that experience for me, and I wanted it for the people who worked for me. Wow, I'm, 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 I was still, I was sitting, the whole time you were, I was listening, but I was stuck with your powerful question. As a leadership coach, I appreciate the power of a powerful question and your question, you know, what, um, uh, what delight do you want to bring forward in the, in those that you serve? Just what a beautiful question to sit in. Well, and, you think and, about schools that are, that are, you know, frustrated with, you know, regulations or, or hospitals that are frustrated with um, all the layering of government, uh, you know, authority and that sort of thing. And, you know, you look at a school, who are they trying to serve? They're trying to serve those kids, right? Or a hospital trying to uh, help a patient get through a difficult health issue. If we can keep our attention focused on that, we can put up with a lot of other pain. Because one of the things I want to make sure your audience hears is there's a huge difference between joy and happiness. Yeah, say, and you make that distinction later in the book, but maybe you want to talk, and I think that's a really important distinction to make. And it's, it's, it's that being joyful along the way isn't always about being happy. So it, what, what do you mean by that? Well, look, whatever we do in life, if, if it's something worthy and meaningful, it's going to be hard work. It, it, none of this is easy, right? What we do for a living isn't easy. When teachers are teaching kids, it's not easy. When doctors are curing patients or working with them through difficult things, none of this is easy, right? There's going to be setbacks. There's going to be disappointments. You couldn't possibly be happy every minute of every day. It's just it's not natural. It would probably require medication. But joy is a much longer arc. Joy is, you know, uh, one of the examples I use in the book is when you cross that finish line at a marathon, you think of all the training you went through, how much pain you're in, how your feet hurt and are probably blistered. There's no happiness in any of that stuff. But there's the joy of that deep accomplishment to say, I did this or we did this. And that, I believe that, that basic intrinsic motivation, whereas... You know, especially in teams of people where we're wired to be in community with one another and work on something that's bigger than ourselves. And when we do it, joy. Nice. Yeah, and I, I guess another word that we sometimes use and hesitate to use, as engineers hesitate to use, and, and it's, it's something you can walk around with all the time, even though it can be challenging and difficult to hold it, is uh, the L word. Yep. Um, there's, and, and that's, you know, you want to, joy is, joy is actually an easy one to use in connection with organizations. Try saying love out loud too much in, in our organizations and, and you're maybe asking to be, uh, committed to, um, to an institution of some, some sort, but it's, it, it's essentially, um, what I'm hearing in, in your rejection of, um, the, the old ways of working is, is, um, is a deep love for, for engineering and, and its products. Well, think about the statistics that we're seeing, right? Where, you know, 60, 70% of people are disengaged at work. Yeah. There's, there's the energy crisis we need to work on, the human energy crisis in our workplaces. And I actually interpret that statistic differently than most people do. When most people hear that statistic, they think 60% of the people on my team are disengaged. I actually think it's different. I think it's 60% of every individual is disengaged. 
So on average, you know, that some people are going to be less disengaged and some people more. But you've actually lost a piece of every one of the people on your team. And if we can learn to recapture that by focusing on that why, the purpose, the external purpose, the goal that's bigger than ourselves, we can actually re-energize our entire teams. We can get them working hard work together, shoulder to shoulder, working on that thing, no matter how hard the work is, no matter how difficult in any moment it is, we can actually capture that human energy that's probably the biggest thing because we're already paying for that energy, right? I mean, it's, these people walk in our doors every day. Yep. They're here. They're here in the room. If we could just capture the money, the, the energy that we're paying for already, imagine what we could do in the world. Well, and and, and the you know, and sometimes you know, people we measure these things, and we we have to run statistical tests to find out the difference. But I, I agree with the point that you're making. An engaged person isn't isn't ten percent better than a disengaged person. An engaged right. person, when they're engaged, is maybe five to ten x better in terms of, of the, both their emotional energy and their productivity and the quality of the kinds of things and the care that they have, not only for their work, but for their, their fellow workers, too. And so you don't need a T-test to find, find an engaged worker. Uh, when you see them, they go, oh, my gosh, that's, that's what it's about. And, and we've seen similar effects in education when you unleash young people. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, so, and, um, and I will you know, tell you, of the tour groups that come to Menlo, yep. the largest constituency after tech firms that come are schools, schools well, and universities. And they plead with us. They say, please tell the world this is what school should be like. Well, and that, and that's you know, and that's sort of what we'd like it to be like. But uh, you know, as 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 a recovering faculty member, we've met. You know, it's the Pogo challenge. We've met the enemy, and he are us. And and uh, so it's a uh, so it's it's partially a shift in in mindset. But I think many of the practices that that you have are, are could be helpful in the educational setting. And and actually, a number of them. And we've got a couple of minutes before break, and then and and we can talk about some of this in the next segment as well. But in a, in a chapter you call freedom to learn, you call out. What I've called pair work, you know, pairs of people, pair, you know, pairwise programming uh, uh, ties back to extreme programming and pair pair programming, um, but but you call call out pair work as a key. But it's it, I, the way I read the chapter was it's not just a technique. There's something deep, deeply emotional, and something very interesting uh, going on when people work in pairs. And so, what's that about at Menlo Innovations? You know, when I did my own sort of personal analysis uh, based on some exercise that was inside of Michael Ray's book, The Highest Goal. It asks you to look back in your life and capture the most sort of poignant moments in your life. And it's amazing how when you really start thinking about them, they start spilling out of you like they were just locked away in a little treasure chest. And then Michael Ray asks you to think about why were those moments important to you? And he does kind of the five whys thing, and he gets you back down to one word. And I realize that word for me is being in relationship, meaningful relationship with other people. That drives me and who I am. It, it, it probably evokes those childhood memories of being in a loving household. And... Um, and all of this, I realize now when I look at how Menlo works, the fact that we work two to a computer, everybody here works in pairs, the pairs are assigned, and we switch them every five days so that everybody has a chance to build relationships with other people because I don't believe we can successfully work together on the big things that need to be done unless we work together in teams 
and it needs to be a team that doesn't just look like an org chart uh, on, a, on a PowerPoint display. It looks like the kind of sports teams that we most admire. Everybody on the court together, shoulder to shoulder, understanding their relative roles to one another and working together in relationship. Until you get those relationships going, you don't get the, the feeling of safety, the feeling of trust, and the feeling of collaboration that emerge that really gives you a strong team. Oh, nice. And and I wanted we want to dig into some of the other practices uh, that you describe in 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 the book. Let's take a little bit of a break. And and uh, uh, this is Big Beacon Radio with our uh, special guest uh, Richard Sheridan. In the next segment, we want to talk about some of the other key practices uh, at at uh, Joy Inc. to uh, to really unleashing uh, uh, human joy and productivity. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-472. 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio and get the coaching and deep faculty development and, and faculty uh, training and enjoy listening, noticing, and questioning, and other cool things uh, at www.3joy.com. And, and um, we're still here uh, with Rich Sheridan from Menlo Innovations in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and we're talking about his uh, book, Joy, Inc., and um, I'm, I feel like a pig in mud. I'm having more fun than I, a person should be allowed to have on internet radio because uh, this is just uh, fascinating uh, talking with you, Rich. But last in the last segment, we were talking about uh, pair work, and there's so many cool things in the book. I'm not sure where to start. I loved your chapter on rituals and artifacts. I loved your chapter on um, uh, kind of noisy spaces borrowed from the MASH television show. Uh, you know what? Uh, what other what other things do you think our listeners would uh, should should hear about today? You know, a big topic these days today, Dave, is this idea of an open workspace, you know, the, the, um, uh, the open office concept. And quite frankly, it's, yep. it's, uh, it's sort of in the laser beam of people who say this is probably one of the stupidest ideas that uh, business has ever come up with, and they're trying to kill it. 
And every time those articles come out, people send them to me and they say, hey, Rich, look, here is data that proves these open and collaborative workspaces don't work. Uh, they have psychologists with data that proves it doesn't work, especially for introverted engineers. And they're, they're almost like they're expecting that we're going to capitulate just based on the data. And they say, but we know it works for you, so why is that? And I tell them it's a simple formula. We didn't build an open and collaborative workspace. We built an open and collaborative culture. Our workspace is simply a reflection of our cultural values. And I think that's a really important thing to note, is that people who think they can make cultural change simply by making physical change are confused. Yeah. Right? You, you end up with what Richard Feynman in his book called cargo cult science, where you just make it look the same as something else, but you don't actually realize that what's actually happening, the most important things, are invisible. And so I spend a lot of time here talking about uh, uh, an attitude that has to start with me, about making sure we're not trying to motivate people with fear. That one of my key roles is to make this environment feel safe for the people who work here. If we can operate in safety, if we can operate in the opposite end of fear, we can keep ourselves in that most human place where we begin to trust and then we collaborate, then we get teamwork. And quite frankly, in that environment, that high energy environment where people feel safe at work, we get to that thing I think every company on the planet is looking for these days, creativity, imagination, invention, and innovation. And that's what we're all seeking. And um, it's not just simply about changing the space, but I think space is very important. However, you've got to think through the whole system. This is why I think that uh, engineers, in, in, when they're at their best, are systems thinkers. And that's often where I found myself as I was going through the course of my career was I was seeing disconnected systems, broken systems, lack of systems thinking, and all of that stuff pervades everything we do here. Yeah, and I think that's such a nice point about, um, you know, the, it, so it's so easy in, when thinking about culture to get, to get stuck on the artifacts, like the physical space. Okay, well, we'll, we'll create a physical, it's like the field of dreams. Um, the, we'll, build, we'll build a physical space and the culture will come. But, but if, you have, if the operating system underneath is based on directedness, directedness from above and fear based, based on, on you know, carrots and sticks and the usual kinds of measures and so forth, um, you're not going to get something that's very much different. And, and then, of course, um, with that, the, the existence or non-existence of an open physical space isn't going to show to be all that, all that useful. Right. And, and it often goes to the heart of how we reward our team members, right? If you think about uh, the traditional annual performance review, it's all about focused on you and what goals are you going to achieve. And often those goals and, and directions come at the expense of teamwork. They're glorifying the individual over the, over the success of the team. And if you have a bunch of people working on their own individual goals, the odds you're going to hit a team goal are pretty low. Because I can sit back and say, hey, I accomplished my goals. What about you? And, and quite frankly, the way most forced ranking systems work, I get ahead because you didn't get as far ahead as I do. And if that's the case, now we're all going to lose. 
And yeah, and, and you bring that up, and then you know, one towards the end of the book, you said one of the things that um, you thought you you weren't sure how to do it better. And I, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you were happier with the system that you had than other systems. But you know, how, how do you promote people and evaluate them as individuals in a system that values teamwork without, um, without busting up the very motive force of what makes uh, the work joyful? Yeah. Well, first way to do that is spend time together, get to know one another. And because of our paired work environment and the fact that we're switching the pairs frequently, we're literally spending time with other human beings. And I personally, I consider one of my um, uh, responsibilities as a leader is to coach the team on how to have difficult conversations with each other. When things aren't going well, because you can imagine in paired work, you're going to you're going to have difficulty with a person sitting next to you from time to time. And the first thing I tell my team is look at the other person when you're having a difficult moment. Just ask them one simple question. Are you okay? Mm. Is everything going okay in your life right now? Now, if they say it's going fine, you know, there's no external problems. But imagine if somebody lost a pet or there's a sick loved one in their lives or there's some uh, personal emergency that they had to deal with over the weekend and you don't know that. You think they're angry at you. You think they're upset with you. And there's an interference in the relationship that has nothing to do with you. It's just that they're going through normal human stuff. So simply stop and say, you know what, you're another person. I should check in with you. Let me see yeah. if you're okay. Now, if they are okay, now don't assume that the challenge you're having with the other person is on them. Maybe you've done something wrong. So ask them, are you okay with me? Am I doing everything okay here? Now, I tell you, these are a couple of vulnerable questions. And, uh, but if we can continually push forward in this, we get a chance to build these great relationships in the team so that at the time we get to the point where uh, you want to move up, it, what's interesting here at Memo is we are a bossless office, and we didn't pursue that. We didn't read a book about it. We didn't, uh, we didn't think, oh, we're never going to have uh, managerial hierarchy here. It's almost like we missed that day in business school class where they said we should do that, so we just never did. And so we're at about 60 people now, and there's no reporting relationships between people. So the only way you move up, and we do have 15 different pay grades here, the only way you move up is through peer evaluation. Well, you can imagine how vulnerable that is. You know, we, we need to make sure this doesn't turn into some gossip fest or popularity contest. But the way this works is because we have built, we've spent time every minute of every day building these trusting relationships between team members that by the time it comes to the point where we want to give you feedback about how you're doing, the team does it, and they can do it in a really healthy way. And even the team knew they weren't doing it incredibly well and they could do it better, so they actually implemented a new practice. They ran it as an experiment that continues to this day. They call it 4.45 p.m. feedbackies. And they literally, somebody just sings it out and at 4.45 every afternoon, they, they go, feedbackies, and... <laughs> Everybody stops work in their pairs, and they turn to each other and talk about their day, talk about how they felt, talk about how this is working for them, what challenges they might have had. Because what the team realized is if we don't practice giving feedback to each other on a daily basis, when we get time to that where there's something important to give feedback about, we're probably going to be unpracticed in it, and we may have saved up a bunch of stuff that yeah. we shouldn't have. And so there's this little pressure relief valve 
once a day at 4.45 where we're just giving feedback. And it might be just, hey, I had a great day with you, and you had a great day with me. Wonderful. Let's move on. Or it could be, hey, there was something that went wrong today, and I'm sorry I didn't say it at the time. I wish I had. But because it occurred in the context of a day, it's still fresh in people's minds. And yep. It isn't like building up that sense that, oh, my gosh, I, I if I didn't say anything yesterday and I didn't say anything today, I just accept that that's the way you behave. You know, it's so important to keep our relationships clean and yet in so and use the the V word to be vulnerable to do that. In some are, you know, and we were talking about Kerry Patterson and and uh, and of course one of his famous books is about crucial conversations. How do you have conversations with people about things that are tough? And one of the reasons that we need to have those tough conversations is that we're not having these little conversations along the way keeping our relationships clean like you're describing. Yep. And we're not perfect at this either, but the fact that we work at it every day communicates to everybody on the team, people who are just joining and people who have been here a decade, that this is important. Well, and and I and I don't want to hijack the rest of this, but you know the show is about higher education. You mentioned that some of the folks coming through that w- want to see things change the most are are educators. What what are your thoughts about? Uh, where higher education is vis-a-vis uh, joy, and and uh, how what 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 lessons are there in in what you're doing for higher education? Do you think? Yeah, so I think the biggest challenge in education from probably first grade on, because I think we're still doing kindergarten okay for the most part. Uh, from first grade on, is we are spending way too much time focusing on teaching, and nowhere near enough time focusing on learning. And if we could get learning back into our education system, we could change the world. And the, the thing I point out, and when people come here, they, they know it, is that we're teaching kids how to be great test takers. And I can tell you, the world doesn't need great test takers. And, you know, and, and too many regulations are pushing us down this path, and it's too easy for educators to sign up and say, you know what, I don't have time to teach. We've got to teach to the test. We've got to get the good scores so we can get the funding and all that sort of thing. And it's just heading in the exact wrong direction. And we're also creating a system that, you know, in our, in, as it gets into higher education, where uh, kids are in competition, fierce competition with one another, and again, it's almost like that annual performance review process where I don't get ahead unless you lose. Yeah. And the world can't work like that anymore. This can't be that dog-eat-dog world. We've got to figure out how to build collaboration. And what we see in some of the greatest examples where this is working, places like High Tech High out in California, yeah. and uh, the movie Most Likely to Succeed about their experience there is, when students start working together in collaborative teams where they support one another, much like a first robotics type of competition, you actually get tremendous learning going on. And then teaching can fit in to buttress that learning, but it's mainly the kids teaching themselves how to do things. And that's, quite frankly, what we need because the most important thing is to develop a love of learning that lasts a lifetime because the only sustainable talent left on the planet today is to learn how to learn because things are changing too fast. Yeah. And so we just have a, about 30 seconds uh, left. And so um, where, can, where can our listeners uh, learn more about uh, you, more about uh, Menlo Innovations, uh, your book, and, and your work? Yeah, so the book is available wherever books are sold. It's Joy, Inc., 
how we built a workplace people love. Uh, the company is at MenloInnovations.com, and I can be followed on Twitter as MenloPres with a Z, uh, including, well, I guess, almost every place social media is, but that's probably my most uh, prominent places on Twitter. Great. And, uh, Rich, I'm really grateful for your joining us. Uh, keep up the good work and keep spreading, uh, spreading the joy. Thank you so much, Dave. I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education, uh, with our special guest, Richard Sheridan. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, as we continue our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.